Well, uh, today we are going to finish up our sermon series on the book of Jude. Um, you know, we've been spending these four preview services in preaching through this little but often neglected book. Um, and it's tucked away near the end of the, the New Testament. It's right there between the letters of John and the book of Revelation. And this little book, this often overlooked book, has a lot to say to us. Now, if you remember, Jude was the half-brother of Jesus, and he was also an early leader in the church. And he's writing this letter to prepare the early church on how they ought to respond to false teachers who are coming into their fellowship. He's giving them instructions on what they must do to counter the attack from these ungodly people. And although Jude was written almost 2,000 years ago, it has a lot to say to us. It is as relevant now as it was then. And so I feel like it's necessary, because we've taken these four-week chunks in between uh, our sermon series, to just kind of go back and take a look at what we covered during those times. Uh, back in June, we, we looked at Jude 1 through 4, the blessing and responsibility of faith. And we learned from the first two verses that like Jude, we have been set apart for humble service. That we have been called and we are beloved in God. That we are kept by and for Jesus Christ. That all who are truly Christians have been the recipients of God's abundant mercy, peace, and love. And we're reminded of the fact that this is God's work. This is God's grace towards us. It is God who sets believers apart. It is God who calls. It is God who loves, who keeps us in Christ. And it is God alone who gives the mercy, peace, and love that we so desperately need. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve any of it. So faith, true faith in Jesus Christ, is unearnable. It's unmeritable. And it's an unimaginable blessing given by grace alone. And based upon that, based upon this blessing we've received, we now have a responsibility. Verses 3 through 4 told us that we are to contend for the faith. This responsibility is to offer a timely pastoral response. It's the response of all believers to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints against false teachers who would creep into the church and to try to lead others astray. Every true believer is called to know the truth and to defend the truth. This truth, this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who try to change it, who try to add to it or minimize it, or suggest that we live our lives uh, in nonconformity to it, Jude calls them false teachers. We, the church, the body of true believers, must take a stand against them. This is the responsibility of our faith. Then in July, uh, we looked at verses 5 through 16, the end of ungodliness. And this passage serves as a serious and sobering message. It's a message of warning, but of promise that God will indeed deal with the ungodly. They will face judgment, and they will face condemnation. And he's going to deal with them no matter how spiritual they may seem. Now we remember these false teachers, they claim to be religious leaders. They claim to be spiritual authority. Shepherds of, God, of God's church. But 
really their message was contrary to the word of God. They believed God's grace would cover their sin, therefore it didn't really matter how they lived. They were preaching cheap grace. And God's grace pardons, but God's grace doesn't transform. It's not a complete gospel. They were involved in all sorts of immorality. And they encouraged others to participate along with them. But Jude warns them that, you know, God is no fool. He will not be deceived. He's not persuaded by how spiritual one seems on the outside. God will deal with each man according to his own heart. Furthermore, he said that the ungodly can be identified by their character, attitudes, words, and actions. When we look at these false teachers, we can recognize who they are. Their actions become evident because they are contrary to the word of God. These godless people claim to have God's grace, but their attitudes, words, and actions actually show they were in rebellion against God. Their character showed that failure to believe. Their attitudes displayed pride. Their actions showed that they were immoral. And their words, which were contrary to God's word, showed that they were truly enemies of God. And remember, we gave the definition of what ungodly means. It's to act as if you're not accountable to God. That's what it means. It's not that you reject God outright. You just live without concern for Him. And then four weeks ago, we looked at Jude 17 through 23, the effects of truth, love, and mercy. And again, we're reminded of God's admonition to these false teachers. Jude reminds us of God's warning to the ungodly. And he says, until Christ returns, there always will be false teachers among us. There always will be those who try to lead others astray, who come into the church in order to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And therefore, we must be on our guard. We must be prepared. And then Jude tells us how we do that. He says we do that by keeping ourselves in the love of God. And he gave us three ways that we do that. First is that we build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Now remember, building yourself up in the most holy faith is growing in your knowledge and love of God. It's growing in your understanding of God's word. It's growing as a theologian. Understanding God's teaching, God's doctrine, the once for all delivered faith. That's how we do it. He says, furthermore, we... We keep ourselves in the love of God by praying in the Holy Spirit. Prayer is a necessary part of the Christian faith. And also by hoping in the return of Christ. We long for the day when we shall see Christ again face to face. This is how we keep ourselves in the love of God. And Jude says, then and only then are we then able to show mercy to those who are in error. And Jude reminds us of the fact that it doesn't look the same. We don't show the same type of mercy to all people. That there are differing degrees. Those who doubt, the mercy that we show to them looks different to those who have been deceived. And that looks different than the mercy that we show to those who are completely devoted to false teaching. We need to be wise in how we handle that in order to show God honor and to guard ourselves. And so that's where we've been. That's where we've been so far. So, why is this so important to us? What does that mean for us? Why is it so important for us to think about these false teachers? You know, what, why should Redeemer care? Well, 
there's at least a, two answers to that. First, it's important to us because as we get started, we need to realize that church plants are more susceptible to false teachers than existing established churches. Because our body is small, it is easy for a false teacher to come in and have major influence and really affect the body. And so we need to take care of it. And if we're not careful, we are both a magnet and a breeding ground for false teaching. We're a magnet in that it's the cynics, the rebels, the contentious, the divisive, the unrepentant, and the dissatisfied who are by nature drawn to church plants. Church plants are new. You know, they're, they're hip, they're young. They are unformed, and they're easily manipulated. But also, we can be a breeding ground for, church, uh, for false teachers if we're doing our job and sharing our faith. If we bring unbelievers into the fold, being, but we're not careful to examine whether or not they're truly believers, we put them in positions of leadership, the next thing we know, they're leading others astray because they don't have a rightly formed doctrine. So we have that responsibility to, you know, again, build ourselves up in the most holy faith and build them up in the process. So church plants must be careful. But probably the greatest reason why it's so important for us to think about this is that whether we realize it or not, there is a war raging in the heart of every man, woman, and child. Lines have been drawn, and whether you realize it or not, you have been drafted. Okay? This battle, there in this battle, there is a right side and there's a wrong side. There is good and there is evil. One leads to eternal glory and the other to everlasting punishment. And with that comes some good news and bad news. The bad news is this. Every one of us, you, me, all of us, we're on the wrong side. You realize that? We're on the wrong side. The good news is, God is on the right side. And God is claiming His enemies to be His children. God is taking those who are standing against Him and making them a part of His army. You and I, the only reason we're on the right side now if we're truly believing in Christ is because of God's work, what God has done. And this is a great comfort to us. This battle that is raging in the heart of every man, it's over the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is it. That's the main theological issue that Jude is dealing with here. And that's the main issue that each one of us must deal with. The reality is, somebody is going to be Lord of your life. Somebody is going to be Lord. Is it going to be you? Is it going to be someone or something else? Or is it going to be the one to whom it rightfully belongs? Jesus Christ. And so with that, we've seen some ugly truth of, of this condemnation that is awaiting the ungodly. We've seen that we have to fight. You know, we have to take a stand. We have to warn. We have to rebuke. We have to show mercy with fear. But today we get to focus on a very glorious truth. The wondrous glory of God. Let's read verses 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, 
majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You know, it's interesting that Jude decides to end his letter this way. You would expect that after all that he has told them, after all the warnings that he has given, after he's told them to contend, after he's painted this big, devastating picture of what hell is like, what condemnation is like, and how we are to fight, that we're to stand, we're to show mercy, that he would want to bless the church, that he would want to give them a blessing, because they need it. I mean, they really need it. When you think about all he's asking them to do, but he doesn't. You know, you would think that he would give them a benediction. A benediction is a prayer that God's grace would be upon them. Okay? God, Jude actually gave us a benediction in verse 2, where he says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is Jude's prayer that God might continue to bless them with mercy, peace, and love, which flows from God to them. And they need it. I mean, we've seen that. But instead, he gives a doxology. And this is a prayer of praise to God. The blessing then goes from them to God. So do you see the difference there? A benediction goes from God to man. A doxology goes from man to God. It's the opposite direction. And I ask myself, why? Why would he end it this way? After all the fear of God that he has put in their hearts. I mean, when I read... Jude, I, I ask God for help. I, I say, God, I cannot do this. When I think of standing and contending against false teachers, when I think of the, the torment that is awaiting them, I become afraid. I need a blessing. So why does he give a doxology? Why does he give a praise to God in that? Well, there are two reasons for this. The first one, is that only true Christians desire to give glory to God. Only those who are truly in Christ can look, overlook their circumstances and give glory to God. These false teachers, remember, they weren't looking for the glory of God. They weren't, they weren't seeking to glorify Him. They were, they were desiring to exalt themselves. They were using God as a means to get what they wanted. But true Christians don't seek God as a means to live the way they please, to get health and wealth and prosperity. They don't look to God as uh, a means to get them comfort or to give them stuff or to have a peaceful, easy life and the promise to get out of hell free. That's, that's glorying in the gifts rather than the giver. True Christians praise God regardless of their situation because they recognize that He alone is worthy. And so although wolves are at the front door, feeding on the flock, though hardships and affliction might be your lot, you praise Him because He is worthy. He is sufficient. He is your true satisfaction. True Christians desire God, not just His benefits. The second reason Jude ends by praising God is that he recognizes that God alone will win the war that is raging in every heart. You will not contend 
You will not warn. You will not keep yourself in the love of God. You will not show mercy by your own power, but only by the grace of God. Therefore, God gets the glory. So we ought to praise Him for it. And in this passage, Jude backs this up with five reasons that we should praise God. The first is that we praise God because He is able to make us persevere. We see that right there in verse 24. To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Jude says that it is God who is able to keep us. God, God is why we remain in the faith. God is why we stay. We abide, not by our own effort or ability, but because God alone is able to keep us. God guards us. God protects us. It's by His power that we do not fall. And Jude says that not only is He able, but He is able to keep us from stumbling. God keeps us from falling into sin or into error. It's only by God's grace that we persevere and not fall away from the faith. God keeps us in His love. He keeps us from committing immorality or falling prey to this heretical teaching. This is God's work. I mean, when Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, he's not excusing himself in any way. He's saying, my faith, my apostleship, are solely by the grace of God. God gave these to me. This is why I am what I am. You know, Augustine, if you've ever read his confessions, he used to praise God for the grace that kept him from sinning. But he also praised him for the grace that God gave that kept him from sinning worse. Because he understood the potential to sin. And he understood it's only God's grace that held him up. I mean, I, I experienced this firsthand when I did my internship for Missouri Division of Family Services. I worked there for one semester. And I guess because I was a guy, they let me do a lot of stuff that normal interns don't do. I mean, I was, I was involved in investigations. I was there pulling kids out of homes. You know, I, I sat in courtrooms and I listened to these horrible stories of child abuse, of neglect, of, of physical torture, of, you know, sexual abuse. I mean, it, was, it was horrible, the kinds of things that, that I watched, that I observed. And it was all too easy to kind of get self-righteous. I could never do that. I could never, ever do that. I remember sitting in a courtroom, and it was the case was the third worst case of child abuse in Missouri's history. I mean, it was bad. It was so bad that there were three children, and they could not be kept in the same foster home because they would commit the same sort of atrocities to one another. I mean, masochistic, sadistic, cruel things. And the oldest child was six. I mean, this is how bad it was. They had to split them up. The oldest girl, she was almost deaf because she got in trouble and her father put her in a 50-gallon drum out in the middle of a rainstorm. And as that rain pounded down on that metal barrel, it was so loud in there that she almost lost all her hearing. 
I mean, I could go on and on about all the details of this case, but it was bad. Take my word for it. It was bad. And I sat there in the front the front row of that courtroom, and I watched that mother, who was every bit as guilty of performing these acts, stand up and say, not guilty. I was so mad, I was ready to jump that rail and punch her right in the face. I mean, it was, oh, I can't even tell you. I mean, I start to boil just thinking about it now. When this job was so bad, I was like, I did not want to go back. And I knew uh, the next day, I was driving in, and I knew today was the day for the father to stand up, and we knew he was going to do the same thing. We knew he was going to say, not guilty. And, and I didn't want to go. How dare he? How dare he? And I was saying to myself, you know what? I would never do that. I would never be like that. I can never do that to my family. I can never do that to my kids. And then, you know, everything got silent. And it was as if God said to me audibly, yes, you would. Yes, you would. Apart from my grace, you would. And I realized about myself, that's true. There are plenty of times where I have been angry, angry with my family. And I could have just as easily hit them or done something to them. But it was God's grace that stayed my hand. We might try to chalk that up to, uh, well, we were raised right, or we received a certain amount of education, or that kind of thing never happened to us, or, you know, I'm, I'm a good person, I'm a Christian, that doesn't, you know, and, and try to chalk it up to our own innate moral aptitude. But the reality is, it is only God's grace that stays our hand. It is God's grace that keeps us from stumbling. His grace alone. And not only does His grace keep us from stumbling, but too, Jude says that we are to praise God for His perfecting grace. Jude 24 tells us that he, God is able to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Jude says that God presents us before Himself blameless. He says we're presented we are set. We are placed. We didn't present ourselves. We didn't set ourselves there. We didn't earn our right to be there as if we can stand by our own ability before the presence of God. God presents us. And let's not forget for a second who God is. Remember what Cable read. Just the power and might of God. This is a God who is so righteous, so holy, so just, that the mountains tremble and the earth shakes before Him. This is a mighty, awesome, and holy God who demands that we be holy as He is holy. He actually demands that we be perfect like He is perfect. And this is not some bogus claim. This is really what He says, and He means it. We're not. We're not holy. We're not perfect. Yet he presents us before himself. Why does he do it? He does it because he's gracious. Though we don't deserve to be there, God makes it possible for us to stand in his presence. He presents us. He presents us blameless. 
Guys, do you get the weight of this word, blameless? It means stainless, without fault, without flaw, without sin. Now, unless you are absolutely blind or ignorant, or you are just plain lying to yourself, you know that this word, blameless, does not describe you. And just in case you haven't figured that out, I'll tell you, you're not. You are not blameless. You are full of blame. You're full of fault. You are full of flaw. You are stained. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. That's who I am. That's what I am. Yet I am to stand in the presence of God's glory, blameless? Do you know who he is? Do you know how awesome and righteous and holy and terrible he is? If I were to stand there, if I were to stand there, a sinner, one who is unworthy by my own effort in his presence, he would destroy me. I would become like that. I have no right to be there. No reason at all to be there. Except that God presents me blameless. He takes away my blame. He glorifies me so that I can stand before Him perfect, holy. I don't deserve it. I do not deserve it. So the only thing that I can do is lift up my hands and thank Him and praise Him. Thank Him with a heart filled with joy, with great joy. When all who are in Christ stand before the presence of His glory blameless, when we see Him for who He is and who we are in light of Him, the result is exceeding, unceasing, and overwhelming joy. So we praise Him. We praise Him because He is able to make us persevere. We praise Him for His perfecting grace. And third, we praise Him for He is the only God and Savior. Verse 25 says, To the only God, our Savior. It says that there is only one God. There is the God. The one true God. Jude praises God for His exclusive deity. He is the only one true God. This truth is being called into question today. There are people who say that it is arrogant, or it is stupid, or it is mean for us to say that there is only one God. But the Bible is clear on this point. The truth that there is one God that exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, is absolute in Scripture. Scripture are the writings which attest over and over again that they are God's words. God is telling us in His Word, by His words, that He is the only one true and living God. That's it. You know, for those of us who profess to be Christians, this might seem like an easy truth. It's something that we grasp. I mean, Gabe, my two-year-old, I, I mean, I go up and I ask him, Hey, Gabe, is there more than one God? And he says, There's only one God! 
And he does it, and it's like so cute. I mean, you laugh and ask him sometimes. It's so fun. But, but, does he realize it? Does he know what that means? Does he live like he means that? You may confess belief in the one true God, but do you live like there is? Or is your God money? Is it success? Is it comfort? Is it ease? Is it your looks, your accomplishment, your friends and family, your popularity? Is it sex? In your everyday life, what do you ascribe worth to? Is it the only true God? Or is it someone or something else? Jude adds that God is not only the one true God, but that He is our Savior. He is the source of our salvation. And what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believeth Him should not perish but have eternal life. It was the Father who sent the Son, the Father who loved the world that He so much that He gave His only Son. The Father saves. The only true God is the source of our salvation. But fourth, we praise God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here it says that Christ is the only way. Now this phrase is what makes this doxology explicitly Christian. You realize that apart from it, Muslims, Jews, and others, depending on how you define the only true God, our Savior, uh, could affirm, actually affirm this doxology. But this simple phrase, through Jesus Christ our Lord, makes it explicitly and unmistakably Christian. This phrase tells us that Jesus is the only way to God. The only way that we can be saved. It is through Jesus that we are cleansed of our sin and that we are reconciled to God. Jesus is the means by which God saves. Salvation, redemption, reconciliation come through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But not only is He the way that we are saved, but He is also the only way that we can offer acceptable worship to God. This is something that we don't often pay attention to. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, and we need someone to intercede for us, someone to mediate us to God. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He not only saves us from our sin and our deserved wrath of God, but He also redeems our worship so that we might give glory to God through Him. He is our means of worshiping God. It is not enough for us to try to worship God apart from Jesus. We can't do that. God is to be praised through Jesus Christ. And this can only happen if we truly hold Him in our hearts, not just as Savior, as the one who frees us from the power and penalty of sin, but if, as we hold Him as Lord of our hearts. He must be our Lord if we are to truly be reconciled to God. And that's what the false teachers were missing here. That is what you and I can miss. We might want the benefits of Jesus being our Savior, but do we hold Him as our Lord? That changes everything. 
changes the way we live our lives. It changes our priorities. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot be reconciled to God by our own doing, but through Jesus. And we cannot worship God by ourselves. We must do it as we submit our lives to Jesus Christ, our Lord. So now is a time of reflection. I mean, where are you today? Where are you? How is your worship? Are you are you praising, adoring God? Is that characteristic of your life? Or would it be described as praising and adoring something else? Or someone else? Are you trying to use worship as a means of gaining the favor of God? As if you could, if I show up here and I sing some songs, God will save me. I'll earn my salvation that way. That's not why we come here. Or, are you content to worship God, but deep down you still have some questions about the necessity of Jesus Christ? You might be saying, you know, I believe there's a God, but I'm not real sure about Jesus. And you're hoping that God would be pleased enough by the fact that you show up and you sing songs to God directly, but yet you're not singing through Jesus Christ. I mean, this happens. This happens a lot. This text, like so many others, tells us that we cannot worship God as He desires or as He requires except through Jesus Christ. I'll give you one other. Philippians 2, 9-11. through it says, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is glorified as every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if we want to truly glorify God, it comes only through our worship of His Son. And so fifth, Jude tells us that we bless God not only because He has the power to cause us to persevere, not only because of His perfecting grace, not only because He's the only God and Savior, not only because of the life, death, and resurrection and saving work of Jesus Christ, but we praise God simply because He is worthy of all our praise. There you go. There you go. All right. We praise God for He is inherently worthy of worship. Here, Jude is simply acknowledging God for who He is. To God belong all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And this is not wishful thinking here. He is simply proclaiming truth. All glory, all majesty, all dominion, all authority are God's, and they are His in complete measure. When we praise God, we're not giving Him something that He doesn't already have. We're not adding glory to Him. God is already glorious. We are simply acknowledging something about Him, who He already is. We are ascribing to Him glory, which is due His name. We're not giving Him glory. We are acknowledging, we're recognizing, we're admitting, we're confessing that we know this to be true, that God is glorious. 
We are professing that we know God to be who He really is. That's why we worship. That's why we ascribe glory to God. And here Jude focuses on five different aspects of God. First, he he ascribes glory to God. He focuses on the honor, the splendor, and the radiant presence of God. He says, majesty. And this is God's kingly status. The fact that He is greater than all. He says, dominion. That's God's sovereign rule and control over the world, which has absolutely no boundaries. And he says, authority, which is God's power and capacity for government. As the creator of all there is, God owns it. And he has right to all of his creation. He has right over it. And then lastly, Jude mentions his eternality. God is everlasting. He's without beginning. He is without end. He is before all time and now and forever. God was, God is, God always will be. Without beginning or end, God alone is eternal. And here, here Jude is simply saying, God deserves our praise because God is God. We praise God because He alone is God. And so that truth reminds me of, of two things that I want to close with today. And that's simply this. First, the Bible is first and foremost a book about God. Right? When we read it, we should read it thirsting to know more about Him. Not just wanting practical advice on how to make our lives better or in order to get the things that we want. That's not why we read the Bible. We should read the Bible with a thirst for God Himself because the Bible is first and foremost a book about Him. So when you read, ask the question, what does this passage tell me about God? Only then do you respond, what does this tell me about myself in light of God? And what should I do about it? If we start with application, we're really just trying to to live a better life. That's really what we're trying to do. We need to seek to know God in His Word. And secondly, Jude reminds us that life itself is about God's glory. And everything, absolutely everything, is subservient to that. And that means two things for us. It means first, that everything in our lives must be done for the purpose of glorifying God. Everything that we do. The way we interact with our family or with our neighbors. The the way in which we go to our job and work our job. The things that we spend our time, our money on. Those are to be done to the glory of God. And this ought to change our priorities. It ought to change some of the decisions that we make in life. And secondly, it it says that every situation of our lives must be read in light of God's ultimate glory. Hard things, evil things happening to us is not the big problem in the world. These things will happen. They will happen. God not getting the glory, though, this is the big problem with the world. This is the ultimate problem with the world. And it ought to burn very close to the core of our being the desire to see God get the glory that is due His name. 
Because I'll tell you something. When you begin to burn for a desire for His glory, your own circumstances and situations become displaced and they become decentralized. What you find is that your concern for God's glory, you are not ultimately worried about that your needs are not being met. But you find that in living for His glory, that you realize that He is the one from whom all blessings flow. It's solely desiring to glorify God. We find that His abundant mercy supplies for our every true need. And it overflows in great joy. When we find our satisfaction in God, if that is our goal, He will satisfy us and He will provide for all that we need in abundance. But He is our goal, not that stuff. So we praise Jude, <clears throat> we praise God with Jude, and, and you will find that God, to whom you give this glory, this praise, this doxology, is the same God who gives you blessing. And so with Jude we pray, Amen. We pray, let it be so. Let it be so with us. Let us praise God with our whole being, with our whole heart, with our whole soul, with our whole mind, with our whole strength. With all of us, let us praise Him, for He is worthy. He is worthy. Let it be so in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we come to You begging You, Amen. Let it be so. Let it be said of us that we desire from the core of our being to worship You. We've seen so many reasons why we should, that you are a God who makes us persevere, that you are a God who perfects us by your grace, that you are the only God and Savior, that you give us our Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, who by his life, death, burial, and resurrection has given us the promise of new life. A new life is not just a change in status, but a change of heart. And God, we recognize that you alone are worthy. Every aspect of you points to the fact that you alone are God and you alone ought to be worshipped. And so we pray to the only God be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Let it be so with us, God, and let it be known by us. For you are worthy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.